Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. For the public symposium held on November 19, 2016, in conjunction with the exhibition Los Angeles to New York, Dwan Gallery 1959-1971 at the National Gallery of Art, Alex Potts explains how new exhibition spaces and the experimental staging of work at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles and Virginia Dwan's Bicoastal Galleries gave Edward Keenholz an opportunity in the early and mid-1960s to realize his large-scale tableau. The powerful effect these works had on the viewer was not just formal, as in minimalist art, or simply a result of their often provocative in-your-face presentation, but was also related to deep undercurrents of socially and politically charged content. Now, in examining the relationship between Dwan's activities as a gallerist and Keenholz's career as an artist um, in the 1960s, my purpose is in part to underscore the diverse nature of the impulses feeding the US art world at the time. I'm particularly interested in the tensions and the productive interplay there was between the anti-form realism associated with Keenholz and the formless rigor of the minimalist and post-minimalist tendencies that Duane favored after moving to New York. So in addition to detailing the more significant presentations of Keenholz's work that Duane staged or helped to stage, I shall also be discussing the critical responses that these exhibitions provoked. It's striking, in my view, that the most incisive and productive insights into Keenholz came from a group of formalist critics who felt impelled to account for the powerful impact made by work that seemed so divested of the formal structures they saw as integral to serious art. This shows that there is no necessary contradiction between Duane first being powerfully drawn to Keenholz's seemingly aformalist sculpture and then becoming attracted to art where a re-examination of issues of artistic form and structure became a key priority. Something more intriguing was at issue than a straightforward shift on her part from an openness to the new realist beat and assemblage proclivities of the Los Angeles art world of the earlier 1960s, which we've just heard about, to a subsequent preference for the more formalist tendencies that were in the ascendance after she based herself in New York. Duan played clearly a key role in launching Keenholz's career as a maker of powerful sculptural tableau evocative of the social and political fabric of American society. Equally, the exhibitions of Keenholz's tableaus she sponsored were instrumental in establishing her reputation as a supporter of important new experimental art. Keenholz was a slightly unusual figure as an artist who in his earlier career was directly involved with the running of a gallery, rather as Duane was as a gallerist who cultivated such close relationships with the artists she supported. Keenholz played an instrumental organizational role in the emergence of Los Angeles as a center for new and experimental art in the late 1950s, most notably in his collaboration with Walter Hopps as co-founder of the legendary Ferris Gallery that opened in Los Angeles in March 1957. 
Ferris's growing prominence, along with Dwan's LA-based shows in the early 1960s, was a significant factor in the shift of gravity in the West Coast contemporary art scene from San Francisco to Los Angeles in the late 50s and the early 60s. Hawks bought out Keenholz's share in the Ferris Gallery after a little over a year, making it a more commercial enterprise and moving into new premises with Irving Bloom's director. Because of Keenholz's dislike of Bloom and what he saw as Bloom's slick style, his relations with the Ferris Gallery became strained. However, he still benefited from Ferris as a venue for showing work and in December 1960, which you see here, was given his first major one-man show there. Uh, this show featured an assortment of early assemblages, and among them, Joan Doe and John Doe, which you see on the left. Uh, John Doe's the sculpture you see on the left, included that year in the New York Museum of Modern Art, Art of Assemblage Exhibition. That was the first of Keenholz's sort of national exposure as an artist. And there's also this affectionate portrait or caricature of Walter Hopps as an art world hustler. Most important, though, was the Ferris exhibition of Keenholz's multi-piece installation, Roxy's, in November 1962. This proved to be a major Los Angeles art world event. It was a walk-through brothel environment which took over the whole gallery space, and it established Keenholz's reputation as a maker of a new kind of sculptural tableau, dealing with highly charged material that had an immediate and often controversial psychological and social impact. And this was the last of his Ferris shows, though Hopps continued to be a very important patron and supporter of Keenholz. In 1960, shortly after Keenholz's relationships with Ferris cooled, he contracted to be represented by Duan. For a time, he continued to use Ferris as his, the main outlet for his work. Duan stepped into the picture as a supporter in the wake of Keenholz's success with his major showing of Roxy's at Ferris. She negotiated with Alexander Iolas to exhibit Roxy's at Iolas's New York Gallery, and she also financed publicity for the exhibition that opened there in 1963. Roxy's was an environment rather than a fully-fledged tableau. The individual figures were still set on pedestals, and their arrangement and much of the furnishing improvised afresh for the space where Roxy's was being shown, um, as suggested by the image in Duan's advert, which makes it clear that this is a kind of mixture of a series of sculptures uh, together with being an environment. A work Duan had acquired early on from Keenholz also had played a role in Roxy's genesis. According to Keenholz, the idea for Roxy's began with a sculpture of one of the prostitutes, a lady named Zoe, which he completed in 1960 and sold to Duan. After making a second prostitute figure, he hit on the idea of creating a multi-figure ensemble of such sculptures. Apparently, Duan refused to let Keenholz buy back a sculpture, I imagine for financial reasons, and incorporate it in his newly conceived work. 
She did, though, in the end, lend Keenholz the sculpture on a temporary basis so he could carry out some repairs on it and fashion a replica for his projected tableau. Now, if I interpret the evidence correctly, her sculpture was renamed Zoa as the ostensible twin sister of the prostitute Zoe, who was in the tableau and was returned to her. Duan recalls that her response to Keenholz's art despite her liking for him as a person, took a little time to mature, and was, even when enthusiastic, somewhat ambivalent because of the aggressively immediate and strongly disquieting impact the work had on her. As she put it in an interview conducted in 1984, Keenholz took a long time for me. I liked the person very much, but I didn't know if I could stand to be around the work that much because it was very strong and very aggressive, and it's very painful at times. As time went on, I began to feel a certain connection with his work, which always had an edge of fear, but it also had an attraction that was very important for me. Now we know for a time, Keenholz occupied a space at the back of her first Los Angeles gallery, just as he had at the back of the Ferris Gallery when it opened. He played an active role in helping to host the French new realist artist whom Duane brought to LA in the years 1961 to 64, uh, serving as a guide to collecting local scrap materials for their collections. And we've heard quite a bit about this in the um, talks by uh, <clears throat> Pam and Julia. For a brief moment, this mixture of radical abstraction an improvised assemblage of real-world materials represented by artists such as Yves Klein, Niki de Saint-Fal, and Armand struck a strong chord with the art scene in Los Angeles, and in particular, and probably mostly, with Dwan and Keenholz, while notably not doing so in New York. Um, and here is one of, uh, rather like, um, uh, Niki de Saint-Fal, is this working? Niki de Saint-Fal shooting pictures. Uh, this was apparently a shooting uh, <clears throat> uh, partly sponsored by Duan in the Malibu Hills. And here is a picture by her that was shown in her big show at Duan Gallery. Keenholz's work began to appear at Duan's gallery with individual contributions to group shows, included her one and very early foray into pop art, My Country, Tis of Thee, presented in the Los Angeles Gallery in November and December 62. There, Untitled American President by Keenholz was given a prominent position opposite Marisol's The Kennedy Family and, as it were, framing one's entry into the gallery. It's interesting, these two sculptures would have been either side of you as you came in. Keenholz's first one-person show in June and July 1963 presented a variety of assemblage sculptures, along with a new, relatively modestly scaled tableau-like piece, The Illegal Operation. The uncompromisingly visceral image Imaging of the sordid blight of backstreet abortion touched a strong nerve. This was a time in the years leading up to Roe versus Wade in 1972 when women's rights to legal abortion was becoming a hot political issue. Now, speaking personally, to be made newly aware of the continuing relevance of artworks one discusses can be reassuring. 
However, I must say that in this case, I take no pleasure in noting that the raw political and psychological immediacy that the work had at the time may all too readily return with renewed force if those committed to criminalizing abortion have their way. It was, Duan, it was the exhibition that Duan organized in October 64 that brought Keenholz, really brought Keenholz, to the notice of the national art press as a figure to be reckoned with, prompting serious discussion from critics who were shaping critical debate at the time, most notably Philip Leider and John Copland's founding members of the team running the Journal Art Forum. Now, here the usual display of an assortment of sculptures gave way to a new kind of presentation focused on three large-scale sculptural tableaus. And here, here I've got the present-day photos. Here are photos I took from the Duan uh, uh, archive. Um, and you can see, I think it's interesting that the display, it, it sort of helps to explain why they were called tableau, because it's very much a frontal picture-like presentation of these works that were set up against the wall, in one case in the corner. So there would have been these three tableaux, three three-dimensional tableaux, and a display that, of course, would have, would have been made possible by the large open space of Duan's gallery. <clears throat> A local reviewer writing for the Beverly Hill Times nicely summed up both the novelty of the presentations, for which the open spaces of Duan's gallery was ideally suited, as well as the strikingly immediate, somewhat provocative and powerful impact the works made, to quote. The works are presented with a theatrical polish that enables the viewer suddenly to become very much part of the environment presented. One is shocked, startled, attracted, and somewhat embarrassed. These upfront tableaus of sex and birth in everyday American life elicited a combination of disgust and fascination from critics, mixed, too, with a certain empathy for their atmospheric evocation of the social and psychic fabric of a reassuringly familiar, but also depressingly banal everyday world. In the case of Backstreet Dodge, 38, recalling adolescent memories for many viewers of desperate sex snatched in a beat up old family vehicle. And here I want to say something about this sort of fascination and atmosphere for which I think the music was always very crucial. And I noticed that again, looking at Backseat Dodge today, that there is a kind of enchantment about the works as well as a sort of stirring up of disgust. And I think it's important to bear both aspects in mind. The most dramatic conversions between Keenholz's and Duan's career came when Duan chose to open her New York gallery in November 1965 with a very unusual single work by Keenholz, The Beanery. I also find it interesting, this is these three photos here come from material in the Duan archives. And it's interesting that the photo of this, I suppose, the photo of the beanery makes it into more of a tableau than an environment by showing the cutaway. Uh, and this became one of the iconic images of the, um, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the work. And I think it's interesting that the invitation actually contains a photograph of the actual beanery. 
I've just shown you this to give you some sense of the, style, of the size and presentation uh, that the work would have made. This was a different kind of sculptural ensemble, no longer an open tableau, but a closed environment, scrupulously replicating on three-quarter scale an actual bar or dive in Santa Monica with its fittings and grungy contents. The work took a stage further, Keenholz's fascination evident in Roxy's, with the oddly enclosed social media found in everyday American life, which ran according to their own internal rhythms, isolated from events in the outside world. With the beanery, we have people hanging around in a bar, killing time, drinking, and socializing in an aimless, desultory fashion, oblivious to what was happening in the wider world. In this case, the United States' increasingly disastrous involvement in Vietnam. And this news was signaled by the headline in the newspaper here, um, <clears throat> uh, posted at the entrance to the bar, our headline announcing an atrocity committed by Christian children against a Buddhist child in South Vietnam. Uh, and Keenholz said that actually seeing this scene in reality, the, the difference between what was going on inside the bar and this newspaper outside it was what according to him, sparked off uh, the inspiration for the work. The work's literalist realism set off a flurry of responses, the most revealing again by the more modernist critics, pondering how such realism could operate as a bafflingly singular form of art. Uh, the work also enjoyed a quite a bit of popular notoriety. There were queues of people waiting to gain entrance, and the exhibition was covered not just as art, but also as a newsworthy event by Life magazine and Newsweek. Grand staging of Keenholz's new tableau issued in a high moment for the artist when he was given serious public recognition in both the East Coast and West Coast art worlds. He had a major retrospective in Los Angeles in 1966 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and then one in Washington, D.C. in 1968 at the Washington Gallery of Modern Art. This public success, however, marked the end of a story rather than the beginning of a new one. There were no purchases of major tableaus by American museums for a while, and the next serious retrospective only came after a gap of 30 years with the show at the Whitney in 1996, two years after Keenholz's death. Duan did not follow up on her dramatic staging of the beanery, though in 1967, she did give Keenholz a show of his concept tableaus in 67. These were framed statements of ideas for works, which you can see up there accompanied by a metal plaque inscribed with the artist's name and title. These could be purchased as works of art in their own right, or as supposedly as the first stage in a three-phase process, whereby the patron would commission a sketch of the proposed project and finally, if so inclined, finance the making of the work. The exhibition included one realized concept tableau, which you see here, the State Hospital, but no others beyond the art show were ever completed. And I think for fairly obvious reasons in some cases, because many were more whimsical propositions than actual practical ideas for works. It's striking that the show did not make much of an impression. 
either as a further stage in Keenholz's career as a maker of sculptural tableau, or as a foray into the new territory of conceptually based art. How this work was generated, I'm not too sure. I have a feeling that the concept tableau and the actual tableau came more or less out together, and it was acquired by Pontus Holton for the uh, Stockholm Museum. The ties between Keenholz and uh, Duan did not simply come to an end at this juncture, however. Duan included concept tableaus in all four of her language shows, where they stood out, I think, for the vernacular American directness of their language and the often charged political content, as in this case. Um, in case you're wondering what lucite plastic is, which he was proposing to uh, encase the chair in, it is a semi-translucent plastic of a cloudy variety. So you would have actually been able to see the chair inside the cast plastic. And this plastic was a little like the polyester resin with which he coated all his sculptures in that it tends to go slightly yellow with age. Um, after the closure of her New York gallery, Keen Holtz was still paying off the debt he had incurred to uh, uh, Duan for support of his mostly unsold early tableaus. He did, though, include Duan in his art show tableau, which he was working on in Germany. And she traveled to Berlin in 1975 to have her figure modeled by him in his studio there. And I think the resulting characterization was one which was quite an affectionate one, as you can see on the right. I shall conclude by examining the productive tensions I mentioned earlier between Keenholz's vernacular, seemingly aformalist realism, and the formalist commitment of the more intellectually engaged critical writers on his work. The article published by Philip Leider in 1964, uh, Leider was a founding editor of Art Forum, clearly took work such as Backsteep Dodge and the impact it made very seriously. But this presented a problem for Leider, in that Keenholz, to quote, came closer than almost anyone else to an end to which the art of our times has been moving inexorably, the elimination of art with its baggage of aesthetics. To continue, it would be quite pointless to seek to understand this work in terms of the standard categories of art history, he commented. He owes more to, to quote, the obsessive, obscene humor of Lenny Bruce than to surrealism. But if it singularly resisted the formal categories he used to evaluate art, it could not be dismissed as an art, to quote, that succeeds in fixing around a single image, the distilled experience of the times, it tends to become folklore. It misses badly when it misses and succeeds into folklore when it is right. For its great strength lies in its capacity to tear murderously through all sham right to the heart of the matter. And I think here the appeal to the combination of the disturbing and also the nostalgically or familiarly comforting associated with folklore does seem about right. Similarly prompted by the Los Angeles show of Keen Holtz's three tableau, John Copland's 
also closely associated with Art Forum, came to a similar conclusion in a lengthy analysis he published in Art International, to quote, in projecting himself in the role of a social and psychological moralist, Keenholz is aware that art, or at least sophisticated contemporary art, is not supposed to deal with such issues. He will do so in protest and defiance of any such restrictions. As a result, the best of his pieces become folklore and irrefutable truth about our society. He made two further important points. He noted how the tableaus were never conventional depictions of a particular situation or event, but to quote, through the title or the homogenized iconographical wholeness or through a peculiar buildup of iconographic references, he leads us to the banal, mundane, or matter-of-fact entities of specific beings and events. Finally, he noted how, to quote, Keenholz works consistently within precarious arrangements that maintain a peculiar emotional charge which can never be mistaken for conventional aesthetic arrangement. Instead, he projects a stream of elusive metaphors which transform the indifferent material. One of the better statements on Keenholz's work, I think. The factors identified by Copland's as he was helping to make Keenholz's um, <clears throat> The factors that Copland's identified as helping to make Keenholz's work oddly compelling, despite the absence of conventional formal qualities, the accumulation of unmediated detail on the one hand, and the sentiment, are taken up in two other particularly thoughtful responses. Sidney Tillam, in his article in Art Forum, concluded. At bottom, the beanery, and this is, I love this, I think this really hits something. At bottom, the beanery is a kind of underground pre-Raphaelite aberration. What is probably harsh and tacky in reality becomes, when invested in a loving simulacrum of it, a poignant wish fulfillment that exposes the very loneliness and alienation motivating an era of popular camp, but without any of camp's condescension. In her article in Art International, Jo Baer, a minimalist artist who participated in Grant's famous 10 show in New York, offered, I think, an unusually exactingly full and searching description of the insignificant details or insignificant seeming details that make up much of the substance as well as the meaning of Keenholz's work. Hers is careful looking at its best, infused with a minimalist passion for the concrete and specific. And she concluded with this virtuoso summation of Keenholz's approach. Literal. Keenholz seldom uses metaphor. He sometimes renders ideas word for word. Realistic. Keenholz's art commonly transmutes whole bodies of day-to-day -day feelings and emotionalized principles into complete expressions of their thought. Diminutive. 
Keenholz often reduces objects and performances. She noted how the car in Backstreet George is radically shortened and how the bed in When Sugar Plums Dance in Their Heads is shortened some 18 inches in the middle. Pointed. Keenholz's art is always pointed one way or another. Now, I'm not suggesting these reviews um, articulate responses that would have been directly shared by Duan, and I feel that doubly as Duan is sitting here in the front row. <laughs> Rather, I think we should see them as offering insights into the critical attitudes to and understanding of, understandings of contemporary art, framing and in some ways shaping her engagement with Keenholz's work. This was a context in, a response in which a responsiveness to art committed to formal rigor existed in tension with, but was not exclusive of, valuing art that was unapologetically realist in a vernacular way and tackled highly charged and provocative subject matter. There are also, I feel, and here I'm being pretty speculative, broader connections to be made between the kind of work Duan patronized at the start and at the end of her extremely productive career as a gallerist. Keenholz and Smithson were undeniably radically different artists, and Duan's espousing both is a tribute to her insight into the more vital currents in the art of her time. If we take a step back for a moment from a conventional critical framing of the situation, however, one can detect certain underlying affinities. Both artists were committed to making work of considerable ambition that dealt with fundamental existential questions. Smithson's concerns were more metaphysical, having to do with an imaginatively expansive sense of existing in a material world that had no regard for human perspectives. Keenholz's concerns were with the social and political fabric of the world in which he lived and was directly anchored in its politics and popular myths. Both artists, in the very different ways, exemplify the richness of an ex existentially charged post-abstract art. Smithson may have become much the more pivotal presence in the art world after the moment of his and Keenholz's most intensive productivity in the 1960s and early 70s. However, one shouldn't discount Keenholz as creating an art that only spoke narrowly to his own times, partly because of the concrete sociological anchoring of his tableaus, their often disturbing charge persists, as do the larger issues and situations they address. His five-car stud, shown at the 1972 Castle Documenta, offers a raw, deeply disturbing imaging of racist hatred, which we are discovering is unfortunately still very much a reality in the America of today. Thank you. <clears throat> This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 